Tune in every Tuesday to the Learning with Lowell podcast with me, your host, Lowell, to hear world-class scientists, startup founders, CEOs, and authors, people who you wouldn't normally hear about but are making huge waves all the same. You'll understand them and their work by hearing their passion, laughter, advice, and hearing them, the experts, break down what they're working on so that you can learn, push the boundaries of your knowledge, and understanding. Three quick ways to show your support and get unique, exclusive, and fun content is by checking out learningwithlowell.com website, our Patreon page, even if it's just a buck, it keeps us advertisement free, and subscribing. Today we are joined with Cy Montgomery. She's an amazing author of such books as The Soul of an Octopus, Birdology, Journey of the Pink Dolphin, Tamed and Untamed, and her recent book, How to Be a Good Creature. She's written 20 plus novels. She's a best-selling author. We get into her writing, journeying around the world to write about these animals, where she wants to go in the future. Give some of her books a try. Try them on Libby or what have you if you want to save a couple pennies. And if you like them, buy them. That's basically what I do. I try them for free at the library. And then if I like a book, it goes on my shelf. It's like the best compliment I can give. As a quick note, this was all done over the phone, so the audio quality isn't as robust as normal. So first question would be, because you've written, I mean, I don't know, I have like your your website in front of me, and you've written children books and adult books, and you've probably written like, I don't know, probably a dozen of them at this point. How long were you, did you ever, were you like a part-time writer for a while, and then like you slowly transitioned to be a full-time writer? Or like how no, did that? I was always a full-time writer. Um, I started out working for a newspaper uh, right out of college, and um, at first I covered Oh gosh, nine little towns in Hunterdon County, New Hampshire, um, New Jersey. And after a year, parlayed this into the position I really wanted, which was covering science, medicine, technology, environment. And then I, I worked at that for four more years. And then I had a chance to take a vacation. And my father gave me a ticket to Australia, where I'd always wanted to go. And you may know this from reading um, How to Be a Good Creature, but Mm -hmm. I do tell in Chapter 2 how getting this this ticket, I decided to go to Australia, not just as a tourist, but with Earthwatch, which cares paying laymen with scientific projects around the world, and volunteered with them for two weeks, fell in love with field research, and when I was at, when the uh, principal investigator, Dr. Pamela Parker, said, you know, gosh, I can just see you're on fire to do this. Could, could I, could I get you to come back somehow? I can't pay you, but any chance you could come back? I immediately went back to my job, quit my job, and moved to attend the Outback, where I studied emus. And from then on, I spent six months in the outback studying emus, which was great. You're living in a tent. You're not looking in mirrors. You're not having showers. You're not struggling in the stupid old pantyhose. And all day, I got to spend my days with these amazing man, tall birds who were able to run 40 miles an hour over the outback, flightless birds who were strong enough to sever fencing wire with a single kick. And they accepted me into their company. And 
after six months of living like this, I just knew I couldn't go back to mm-hmm. doing anything else but writing about animals and traveling to where they live. And so that is what I have done. Were you ever afraid? Like, you know, you went back, you, you quit the quit your job and you went somewhere. Were you afraid you weren't going to make it or like it wouldn't work out? Or are you just like really confident um, in yourself? I guess, yeah, you're always, you're always afraid that, you know, you're not going to be good enough, that you'll fail. I knew what my destiny was, but I, you know, destiny can be refused or destiny can be failed. And so, yeah, I was nervous about failing. I was, uh, uh, that, that made me nervous. But I, I certainly was never afraid of any of the animals that I was with. I feel like Australia is like the one place where I feel like I'd be afraid of every animal. Cause like the... Yeah, you know, they, they make a big deal there about there being so many venomous animals like red, red back spiders and, and poisonous snakes and stuff like that. But at least where I was, um, and I've, I've since gone back to Queensland as, as well and spent some time up there, um, I, I never felt I never felt in danger. And I, I saw redback spiders. I mean, you just got to make sure you're not sitting on a redback spider. And you do stuff like, you know, you don't don't go in the ocean when there's an infestation of box jellyfish, you know. Don't go wading in with the crocodiles. Just just be careful. Don't put your hand somewhere where a snake bite might be lurking. Most places that are renowned for their danger, there's a way to to let the animals know politely that you are there and and there's a way to avoid irritating them. Most animals really don't want to eat you, per se. Most interactions with animals in which people are hurt are when a person makes a mistake and kind of violates uh, violates the courtesy of of interacting with the animal. And once you know how to do that interaction, um, you'll be fine. So I, I hope you get to Australia. I think you would love it. And there's really no need to be scared. You just need to be informed. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I know I always want to go to New England, uh, not New England. I mean, I would, I've would. i been to New England. It's lovely there. But the New Zealand, because like they have oh, hobbits yeah. and I hear it's beautiful. Like the mountains Oh, and it's stuff. incredible. And there's almost nothing there that's going to hurt you. Yeah. I mean, and then they have, I'm kind of like a nerd, I would say. So the fact that they have like the Lord of the Rings sets, I'd, I'd be pretty mm. excited for that. So you can't oh, live there. They won't let you. Gorgeous, gorgeous landscape to visit, though. Mm-hmm. And you can go from lowland rainforest to glaciers within a day's walk. So it's fabulous. I really recommend it. I think that's a good choice. Well, it's it's on my list. Uh, I'm tr- I'm trying to set myself up so I can do more traveling and then like do some writing and stuff at the same time. So the, a lot of these questions can help me as well. But the, I grew up on a I grew up on a farm, and so I can kind of like I can echo your point. Like it, animals kind of have like their own rhythm. Like we had cows, and like they would be like these two ton animals, and they I would just like gently like lead them around, and everyone else would always have like every now and again they would just get like dragged or something like that. But none of the animals ever did it with me because you just you just gotta communicate to them. Like it, once you like. Once you like listen, and people are the same way. Like I think sometimes people think that people aren't animals, but like we all have a rhythm, you know, that we like to yeah. gel to. So like people, like animals are the same way. But so like it, it's an interesting point. I, I've never considered that in Australia, but at the same time, like people live there, so clearly it can't be that bad, right? Yeah, so, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And they are using the same skills that you do around cows. 
That's fair. Well, um, I don't know. Uh, kind of jumping back to to a, a writing question, like going off of like the the you were like concerned, but like you know you were like okay, I love this so much that kind of outweighs it. When did you like when it, was there ever a moment where like you knew like okay, like this will this will work? You know what I mean? Like uh, the concern's gone. The you know maybe like your third published book or, or what have you. Was there ever like a moment where it's like oh wow. This is great. It was like last week. <laughs> and I'm 60. So <laughs> it's, I mean, it's really, it's really funny. So much of, of quote unquote success as a writer depends on stuff that has nothing to do with your talent, nothing to do with how hard you work. A whole ton of it has to do with luck. And we can't control that. But, what you can do is set set yourself up for for the success that you can achieve which is you can write the best possible thing that you can write that you can do whether it becomes a commercial success or not you you can't control um happily though these days because there's an option to self publish you do have the option to publish or not, no matter what. I mean, you can get a beautiful book published with your name on it. And that's an option that did not exist when I first began writing. Now, I have not self-published a book, but I have seen other people do that. And it's a huge achievement to write and then publish a book. Um, I've been, I have been really lucky and I have got to tell you, I mean, I, I can tell you stuff that that I did that I think helped. But what I can't tell you is why, you know, my my books, which I, I think were good books and which I, I worked hard and did did reasonably savvy things to, to ensure that they would be in a position to receive good luck. You know, I, I can't tell you, though, why I have had bestsellers and other talented people people more talented than I am have not I, that I can't tell you and the other thing is that I must say in since I my first book was published in 1991 okay so that's several decades of, of publishing books in 1991 when I was much younger I thought I understood publishing much better than I understand it today now, that does not mean that I actually did understand it better. It means I thought I understood it better. But it's very possible that I did understand it better because it made more sense <laughs> or it was more simple than it is today. But I know for sure that today, with all the experience that I've had and all the good luck that I've had, I can tell you without a doubt that I do not understand my industry and I do not understand what makes a book a success. It is a complete mystery that's fair it it does seem kind of like like a dr seussian thing where like you pull a bunch of levers and like maybe an egg will come out they don't yeah. really know it's kind of true so the one thing that you can do is live a life that you love and give yourself as much artistic freedom as you can and i can tell you how to do that hmm. but you probably already know no, I don't know. I don't know how to do that. My my girlfriend's written ten books, 
and I'm finally getting her to the point where she'll let me help her publish one, like a self-published. Really? So this is, yeah, this is this is good. I will, I will literally take this, and I'll go walk right. to her after this and be like, actionable advice. Well, here is what you do. I mean, many, many people do not write and do not publish because of two major things. One, they they don't give themselves the, the freedom and the time to write. And there's various reasons that they do that. One is feel, fear of failure. Um, the other is that they want a whole bunch of stuff that they would rather have than time to write. So, you know, they have really great looking shoes and they have a dishwasher and they have a nice car and that's what they choose to spend their money on instead of essentially buying time. And by buying time, I, I mean my husband and I are both my my husband and I are both full time writers. Neither one of us have any kind of an outside job that provides money for us. This is extremely rare. And one reason is I never buy anything. <laughs> so if you don't fill your your life with a bunch of crap that you don't need. Um, that, that gives you time to write because you're not forever doing some other job that will give you enough money to have nice shoes and a nice car and a fancy haircut and all that kind of stuff. Neither one of us care anything about that. So having a simple life gives you time to write. Um, as far as getting over the fear that, you know, what you're going to write is no good. Um, the advice I can give on that is, hey, I totally hear, hear people, I totally understand when folks say, oh, I just can't believe in myself. Because even after, I think I've written 26 books, I've met three national bestsellers, and I still question, am I good enough to write this book? I still do. So first, know that questioning yourself doesn't mean you're not good enough. It just means you're a writer. And two, when you can't believe in yourself, and we can't always believe in ourselves, believe in your story. Believe in your teachers, the, the teachers that, in my, my case, the animal teachers who helped me write. So that's how you get past that. Hmm. I, think, I think that's pretty solid advice. Like I, I was kind of like applying it to my life. When have I used this advice and how is it, how is it like worked out and and it's kind of like you found out outside like um like sometimes when you think internally like it can be really skewed it's like writing things mm -hmm. down or like talking to the other teachers like kind of like makes it come out so then you can see mm -hmm. like it's like sometimes you can have like a negative thought about yourself but once you say it out loud it sounds stupid or like it's like yeah. oh wow i'm you know my hair doesn't look that bad <laughs> like why am i right, yeah. right right yeah. you got it yeah the i don't know i was talking to someone yesterday who I, I was, I, we were talking like billionaires and I was like, what do people do with that much money? I would just like give away nine, like, I would like invest 99.9999% of it and just go live like an average life and never tell anyone. Yeah, me like, too. Yeah. It's like, I don't even know what you do with a lot of money other than, I mean, have it, but I mean, yeah, I don't yeah. either. I don't yeah. either. I mean, I, I am having, uh, when you're packing all the time and you only have like seven pairs of underwear. <laughs> Um, it occurs to you like I should buy another pair of underwear. <laughs> well, I'm probably
probably not going to buy another pair of underwear because it's boring and I don't feel like like any. Like these socks have six holes in them. Mm. Well, so what? (laughs) I don't care. So if I had a whole lot of money, I would give it away because I do see the earth being broken and I do see other animals and people that can use that money for something really important. But for me, I I really, there's nothing out there that I want that I don't already have that can be bought with money. Is there, I have enough. Yeah. I mean, it's a good mentality to have, especially, like, you know, like people my age or like, you know, in their 20s who are, I think there's a lot of like subtle keeping up with the Joneses. Like a lot of the people I... A lot of my friends are always feeling like they're not doing enough, and it's like, who who are you racing with? You know, like who's, who's yeah, right. racing you? Like, like find an internal metric that you want to do, like set goals and whatnot. But like, it doesn't matter if your friend looks like they're doing better. Who cares? Like, be happy for them. Yeah, you know, like, exactly. Yeah, it it doesn't take anything away from you to have your friend doing well. In fact, it should make you happy that your friend is doing well because you yeah. want your friends to do well. They're not taking it away from you. Mm-hmm. There are some cultures in the world that do think that there's like a finite amount of luck. And if you're having good luck, it's taking away from someone else. But our our Western culture, for all its flaws, does not have that belief. And then you think of what every great mind ever in the history of the world, men and women, what they call sadhus and in, in, um in India, to bodhisattvas and Buddhism, to, you know, great thinkers, every single one of them, without exception, tells you that money is not important. There is no one who tells you that money is important. They all tell you it is not important. So who are we to question that? And why do we question it? Because it's mm-hmm. completely true. I mean, obviously, if you're starving, you need some money. Mm-hmm. But money is totally not the route to happiness. And studies show this, too. People with the most money are generally not very happy at all. Mm-hmm. And when they are happy, it's not because of the money. Well, there was a, They're happy because of something else. I think I was reading a, a research thing that was done where... Like if you get if you make more like ninety thousand, like it doesn't matter. Like you stop caring. Like nine, like somewhere around like sixty to ninety thousand dollars a year is like is more like we're like it stops mattering if you make more. So like, right. like yeah, so it's like okay, <laughs> you know what to work for, I guess. But uh, and we're pretty fortunate. Yeah. I think I think a lot of people, especially in America, are very fortunate. Like it's like you have a house. I mean, you have a roof over your head. You have food in your belly. Like you have the right. ability to access the internet and teach yourself anything you want and connect with people who are like you and build things. It's like, uh, I, I, that's what I think is weird about. I don't This is like a weird tangent to go on, but I think that's the problem with like the people my age. I think they have like this desire, this intrinsic desire to do good, but because like the internet and all these things are, are so new, like we we're still learning like, Hey, we can use these things to progress ourselves. And the ones who are figuring it out are actually, you know, doing pretty well, but, I think some people look at their parents and stuff as guy like what did they what did they do when I was when they were my age and it's like it's like like the wild west like you can do anything and there's really no template so it's a little difficult but uh, but one one thing I, I was curious about and one of your things like 
you ask yourself is like, am I good enough to write this story? Is there is there a story that you don't feel like you're good enough yet for? Like, I mean, I know you, you question yourself, but is there one that's like, oh, it's like you're, uh, I don't know, is there... I'm not very good at analogies, but it's like your Everest where like one day your Magnus Opus. Yeah. There's a writing term <laughs> that mm. you're like working for. Not right now, but every time I write anything, even if it's not, um, well, let me back up just a little bit. When I wrote the soul of an octopus, that was a leap for me. It was a leap for me because before I had not, written an adult work about an animal who was not a vertebrate or a mammal. Well, actually, I'd written about birds and birdology, but I had not written an adult-length book about someone who was not a vertebrate. Becoming friends with someone who was an invertebrate, a whole other classification of, of being, and a marine invertebrate who is more different from us yet, that was a leap for me. And writing about the consciousness, the mind, the soul of a marine invertebrate was a huge leap. And I would not have felt confident writing that book before I did so and began to write it in 2011. I finally felt ready to write that book. But I could not have met right out of the chute. Um, my first book, in, uh, which was published in 1991, was a book about people and animals very much like ourselves. It was about, you know, the, the three women scientists who studied the three species of eight most closely related to humankind and that seemed like a very good place to start mm -hmm. because you know I am a, a human female so I know a little bit about th what that feels like and I am a primate so I know a little bit of what it might be like to be a chimp or a, or a gorilla or an orangutan and my first book was about the relationships that these three women had with their study animals. So um, having already studied the emus in Australia by the time I began writing that book, I knew a little bit about forming relationships with your study animals. So I had experiences under my belt that were going to help me understand the new truths that were going to be revealed to me in the course of that book. Um, when I started on The Soul of an Octopus, I had decades of work with a variety of animals, but it was still a new beginning for me, and so that was that was a big deal. Um, so I kind of don't know too much about what's ahead. I've got several projects in, that are that are that are underway right now, but none of them are radical departures. Mm -hmm. um, what I what I do know that I need very much to do is take it a little bit easier after the last bunch of years that I've had have been, you know, the sword of Damocles hanging over my head, you know, hanging by a hair, deadlines at every moment, and I realize that um, I... I should pull back just 
a little bit. I'm now 60, which doesn't mean that I'm old, but it does mean that life, life when you're young, you want so much to give back. Um, you want so much to give some accomplishments in exchange for all the air you're breathing and all the food that you're eating and, you know, you, you, you want, you want so much to make your life an instrument of, of thanks and of, and to, you want your life to glorify the rest of all life. And I still very much want to do that. But I also realize that the Creator also gives us this beautiful world so that we can enjoy it. And I've certainly been enjoying my life, but I, I need to, to slow the pace a little bit down. Mm-hmm. Maybe just for a little while. And, and not work on six books a year. Yeah. Well, you deserve it. I think everyone should have some time. Even everyone should take like, some time, like travel and find a spot. Especially because, like, you never know when your your home will be. You know, like, you might, like, go over, you know, like, hiking through New Zealand and you find, like, this little spot of land and you're like, oh, this feels like it could be home for me. And then right, it ends up right. being where, you know, that's what, when you're out, like, traveling the world, you're like, oh, sweet. I like seeing all these things, but can't wait to get back to my, my nook or, or yes. what have you. Yeah. And, and I have a home that I love very, very much and I'm feeling like I, I see too little. And um, here in Hancock on our eight acres of land, with our darling border collie and our three, only three hens because the foxes have been through. And my, my husband who I see far too little of these days. And I, I love being here too. Mm-hmm. So I just gotta find, I just gotta find a slightly different balance than what I've, I've, I've had. And that may be the, the personal challenge I had for me. I mean, already, I'm going to Thailand in January. I'm going to Peru and Ecuador in um, May, June. And I've been invited to Germany in March. And I have a bunch of speaking engagements all over the country between then and now. I still have to finish the book tour for How to Be a Good Creature. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's a little crazy. <laughs> and I have two books that are, I've written them, but you know how it is with books. Just because you wrote them doesn't mean you're done. There's all the editing to be done. There's selecting the pictures and placing the photographs and um, okaying the layout and writing the captions. And um, then there's the book tours. Mm-hmm. So I still have all of that to do for, for two books, which I've already written. And then a book I'm going to write on giant manta rays that has a whole expedition that needs to be planned for the spring and the scuba. So I've got to, I've got to uh, brush up on my scuba skills and yada, yada. You kind of get the idea. There's a lot going on. Well, you know, you could pick like maybe like one per season. Like if there's like a really big seasonal animal in like the fall, like that's your, you know, that's your animal (laughs) instead of six. Yeah, that would be good. Decreases it by a third. Right. Well, um, right now the the new book that I'll be working on will be the Giant Manta Rays. Although I have two other books in mind, and I just hope 
that I can schedule them for not immediately. But the problem is I have so many ideas that I want to, I want to do them all. And you kind of get this point that you've got your 15 minutes of fame. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, the first week that How to Be a Good Creature came out, it was number nine on the New York Times bestseller list for new nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And you, you're kind of hot when that happens. And that's like the hot moment when you want to, to pitch a new book to your publisher because they're likely to be most excited about it at that moment, not a year later. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to be working on too many books at once anymore. I want to be just finding the right pace. So that's the challenge awaiting me right now is can I find that right pace? Well, John, John Scalzi, he's a fiction writer, I think. He didn't, he'd like, he got to he used his like previous book sales as mm-hmm. like leverage to get like a 10 book deal. So maybe, you know, maybe instead of having like that narrow window of opportunity, like you look at all the other stuff you've done, then you'd be like, look at all the stuff I brought you. I want to Yeah, the thing book. is, I don't want 10 books in front of me. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that is an example. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. I mean, yeah, I don't want to have 10 books ahead of me, particularly since you also want to have some time to be free for serendipity to find you. Because mm-hmm. there may be a book, the idea that that I, you know, there may be another idea waiting for me out there. And if I don't have a little bit of, you know, air and space between projects, I won't be able to, to take advantage of that opportunity. So I think it's a skill I haven't yet got. As a freelance writer, for the longest time, particularly when you're young, you kind of have to say yes to everything because you you don't know when you're going to get another another opportunity. So I said yes to a lot of stuff. Oh gosh, sorry about this. This is the jet lag from just getting back getting back from Barcelona late on Monday night. Mm. Um, I normally am not too jet lagged or maybe I am and I just forget that I have it <laughs> but this wasn't uh, I, I've had two big cups of coffee and I'm still a little bit yawny it's not talking to you that's making me yawn it's just oh, jet lag you're, you're doing great I didn't <laughs> think you were bored I, I know I know you're jet lagged like it doesn't come across like uh, oh good like it's also I don't know what time it is there I mean it's still pretty it's over here it's like 30 minutes till noon so I don't know. Yeah, right I, here I know. It's, it's thirty minutes to one. Okay. Well, I I know college students that don't get up until two p.m. I don't know. Oh. That's weird. It's like the weirdest thing. I, I don't know. I like a very specific set schedule for my sleep and wake time. But I don't know. That's, that's besides the point. So, but I, I hear you, and I think you deserve it. You know, like like enjoy the moment, but then you know have fun writing and, and doing what you love at the same time. But like to like transition to more, I guess like science questions. Is uh-huh. is do you have like a like do you have like a favorite story involving the animals you've written about or animals you uh, look forward to writing? That uh, this probably wouldn't be a look forward to question, but anybody <laughs> anyone that you've written so far that like you had to like leave the story out? Like sometimes you have like like a narrative and it's like oh this story is really great but like doesn't fit it so you have to edit it out. Well, there was one in Soul of an Octopus that just didn't make it in that that was kind of interesting. And this was when I had a a um, pretty venomous octopus stuck to my hand. 
It was a red octopus. They're a small octopus, and their venom won't kill you, but it is flesh-dissolving. And the only way to denature the protein in their venom is to take boiling water that will give you a third-degree burn and pour it into the wound. So it's not a good thing to be bitten by these animals. Well, I had one <laughs> glommed onto the palm of my hand. And their mouth, as you know, is in their armpit. So when they're glommed onto you, there was a mouth with the beak and the venom glands right up against my skin. And I was thinking maybe I should get the octopus off. So um, what happened was I think we, we were we both kind of wanted to touch each other, but then once we were touching, we were both scared. So. Um, we both kind of came to that conclusion at the same moment. And so she left my hand, but she was so frightened that when she left my hand, she inked. I'd never seen an octopus ink before. And what happened when she inked was my eye instantly went to the blob of ink, not to the octopus. I wanted to be following the octopus, but instead my eye was drawn to the blob of ink, which was exactly the shape of an octopus. And when I finally got my brain focused enough to say, that's just a blob of ink, don't pay attention to that, find the octopus, I saw that she had jetted to the opposite side of the tank and completely changed color. And it was a great thing because I could see exactly how a predator would be fooled by that blob. And I saw that the blob was not, as I thought, a smoke screen like the Batmobile, mm -hmm. but it was a fake octopus that was produced. The image of a fake octopus was produced by that animal. And that it looked exactly like a fake octopus with, you know, the mantle and the head and the arms. Everything was complete. And you could not help but look at that. Hmm. That's interesting. Like octopus are, they're very weird creatures. Like they're very smart. If they were, if they were a little bit more social, they'd, they'd probably slowly rise up and replace humans. But and like, I think that might be a good thing for the Earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think so. I was reading someone who said that. If it's you, I'm sorry. If I'm like paraphrasing you wrong, but uh, the that like octopus or like the most alien thing on the planet because they, they they like their way of viewing things is different than ours like so different yeah yeah ours. i did say yeah. that i i think i said you would have to go to, to either outer space or science fiction to find something more unlike us mm -hmm. than octopus but they are you know of this world and in fact in many ways they are more of this world than we are because they've been here for so much longer mm -hmm. and they're more representational of animals on earth than we are most animals on earth are marine invertebrates not terrestrial vertebrates like we are so although to us they appear so strange and otherworldly they really are of this world very much so more so than we have you ever i think it's called the depth deep into the deep it's by james cameron where they're like they go really deep down into the ocean. There's like aliens living down there. Have you ever seen that movie? 
Deep. Oh, it sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I, I was saying, I'll look it up real quick. But uh, James Cameron. James Cameron. Sorry. I should have a better memory for these things. It was like, this guy wrote, he did like Ter- Terminator. Oh, The Abyss. There you go. I was close. Like, Ooh. uh, but I was going to ask if you ever like watched that before you go on your, um, dives into the water and if that freaks you out. Cause there, I've, I uh. talked to a couple people, like the, there's some polar bear researchers and I asked them, have you, like 1984's John Carpenter's The Thing, if they watched that and they, they do watch that. And oh, it's like, yeah. Yeah, it's about a movie. I don't know if you've seen that one, but it's about a bunch of scientists being, you know, eaten by aliens. And in, in, well, cool. by an alien, yeah. So it's like, you know, in, in your medium. Have you do you ever like watch something like funny, like the? It's not funny, but you know, like funny within context, like the best before you go and in, into these places, like uh, you know, in the water <laughs> or in in the jungle or what have you. No, but, but uh, I I do you know I do read a lot of stuff written by previous explorers and things to just put it into my head. Not that. I expect to see what they saw or experience what they experienced, but I expect to have it kind of in my bank of knowledge that this was what some other humans pulled away from this experience. And I don't expect to have the same experience. I might have a totally different experience. What you don't want to do, obviously, is go in with pre, you know, pre-existing, a pre-existing concept of what you're going to see. You want it to strike you as new but you also want to have all this other stuff just in your in your memory banks so that you can say like oh you know um this this um early explorer found this but i found it to be totally different or oh my gosh this is the same thing that so-and-so saw but you don't want to have expectations because Whatever the world has to show you, that's what you want to fill yourself up with. Mm-hmm. So, like, maybe a, a counterpoint to this would be, you know, like, they have, like, cruises and stuff. I would totally mm-hmm. pay to go on a cruise that, like, mirrored famous explorers or, like, naturalists, like like uh, Charles Darwin, like, go to all the islands and, like, and you can read his journal so you actually can, like, get into the mind, like, have, like, a science Yeah, that journey. sounds really awesome. That sounds yeah, right? I'd do that, yeah. Which is, yeah, we'll, we'll kickstart it. <laughs> we'll get, good, we'll, good. I like that idea. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, but I, I completely see your point. It's like, you don't want to be biased. You know, you don't want to go in there looking for a hyena when you can yeah. maybe see something else. Cause like that person saw the hyena. Then you can get like a different thing to write about. But. Right, right. Do you have, do you have like a, any, do you have like a favorite in the wild animal story? Like I think the, the one you told previously was like, I imagine in an aquarium. Right, yeah. they're in a tank. So, then is, is there one that like in the wild that is that, I, that I have not written about? Yeah. Oh boy, you know, because... usually the best stuff is exactly what you write about. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, it could be what you write about. I was just like, I was trying to be like, if you like this story and didn't even make it in there, you like all the other ones, so they should read the rest of your book. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether I put this in, but um. In my first book, I um, I went to Zaire, now the Congo, to see mountain gorillas. And I don't think I put this in there because I was really concentrating on Diane Fossey's um, experience in the gorilla part of the book. But um, 
I looked up in the forest and saw a man running toward me in absolute terror and soon saw he was being followed by an angry silverback gorilla. So naturally this caught my interest, particularly since he was coming toward me. And I could see what his problem was. He he was when you run away from a lot of animals, including gorillas, they can't help but follow you. And if he did not stop and do the proper thing, it was very possible the gorilla would catch up with him and bite him badly. And it was also possible he would run up to me and the gorilla would think that I, too, needed to be bitten. So, I fortunately, I speak French and called out to the guy and showed him what to do. And this is what we did. You stop. You hit the ground, bending, you know, bending down. You do not look into the gorilla's eyes, which is threatening. You look down, almost like a person bent on bended knee before a king. And what the gorilla did was he he stopped short. He stood up on his hind legs. He popped his pocked his chest, pock pock pock. He dropped his jaw. He let out a scary noise, and then calm. He dropped to all fours and calmly walked off, leaving us to his family. That's that's pretty hard. I don't know if I like. I know you have to do it in that moment, like you know, act that way. But that that animal could easily like cause a lot of damage. Aren't they like really strong? Like much much stronger than humans? Oh, they're totally strong. They're totally strong. But you have to know that he had done something wrong to start with. Mm-hmm. And that was running running away. Um, gorillas have to look out in the forest for people who are coming. That's um, there's always a sentry whose job it is to watch out for danger. And if they see you and think that you're dangerous, they will chase you if you run. Now, a lot of times, if they see you, and the forest is so thick that they don't see you at a great distance, they see you very close. So the force is so thick that if they see you, they're likely to let out a roar. They're likely to stand up on their hind legs so they have a better sight of you. And this is what makes people run, because they're scared. But what you have to keep in mind is you're in their territory. And if it was a person and you were just looking out over their back fence or wandering around their yard... What you would immediately do is say, "Oh, geez, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to intrude." And that's what you're doing with your posture when you turn, when you stop running like you're a thief or a criminal, and you turn around and you bow down and say, "Oh, I'm so sorry. You're the boss here, not me. Please forgive me." And they will forgive you. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Because I, yeah, I, yeah I, I can imagine from the. the from the animal's point of view, like if someone was in my backyard and they were like running away from me, I'm like, someone, they just stole something. Like, what are they doing right. here? Are they hurt? Right. They right. hurt someone? You know, like what's going on? So right. then I want to know. Yeah. So if you can put yourself into the mind of that animal and the, and the animal's concerns, you know, sometimes their concerns are not the same as ours. Otherwise, you know, if everybody wanted the same thing, you know, dogs would not roll and shit and fish would try to escape from the water. I mean, they, they, they do have kind of different different ideas of what's a good good situation than we do. Mm-hmm. But um, 
the more you can put yourself in the mind of an animal, the less likely you are to do something that will irritate them and the safer you're going to be. This this reminds me of a documentary I just watched where, I mean, this kind of reminds me. It's like a very, like, Kevin Bacon type of reminding where it's like seven degrees of separation. But they were talking about, like, these warrior apes where, like, there's, like, a a colony of apes that's, like, 150. They're, like, huge. Like, they're not normally that big. They're, like, normally, like, 30, 40. Wow. This one has, like, it's massive. And, like, some of them, I don't know, it's, like, really interesting because they were were watching them for many years. And there was a... there's like, you know, the three top ones and everyone kind of knows their hierarchy, which is like, uh-huh. there's so many. So that's kind of intense. But um this is an entirely different point than what I was going to make. But I really like this fact. But like there was like the top one and there was like the second place one and third one. And like the second place one was like very social. He was like very like he developed bonds with people. But the third one, he was like this really aggressive guy. And so eventually yeah. the aggressive guy like beats up the top two and then he's the top one. But no one really wants to listen to him because he's a jerk. So the hmm. social one, he like gets all his friends together and they beat him up and then he's the alpha. <laughs> but like, oh wow! I, I always like that story when you, you know, like when you imagine, which I don't, know, I don't know if you're familiar with the Hamilton musical, but I kind of see oh, Hamilton yeah. as like a little bit of a like the like that like aggressive guy that like works his way up, and then he got beat by Thomas Jefferson, which is really more of like that social guy that developed developed uh, th- those connections. So. I was like looking at animals and seeing like what can I pick out about human behavior as well. But I How think that's smart. one of them. Yeah, I think yeah. that's one of them. Cool. That's cool. Yeah. Do you, well, have you ever done any parallels like that, or like when you're, are you trying not to anthropomorphize? If I'm using the right word, or do you like to do you like to try to see the animals as like from their point of view as much as possible, or do you try? Oh and, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I am as interested as the in the things that make us different as the things that make us the same. For instance, an octopus can taste with all of its skin, including its eyelids. What the hell is that about? They can change color and shape, and they can pour their body through an opening, a tiny opening. An octopus that weighs as much as I do can squeeze itself through a hole the size of an orange. However, you can look into the face of an octopus, and you can see that they're as curious about you as they, as, as you are about them. And you can be friends with an octopus. So at the same time, you can be aware of those differences and the samenesses. And being aware of both at once, I think, is is key to being friends with almost anyone. For instance, you know, um, every one of us has the experience of thinking that we know what another person feels and been wrong. Every one of us has bought a present for someone that they did not like that we hoped they would. Every one of us has probably asked someone out on a date who really wasn't interested in us that way. Every one of us has said the wrong thing when they meant to say something kind that someone took the wrong way. So even in our own species, it's easy to make a mistake like that. However, as easy as that is to do, with people and with animals, a bigger mistake is to assume that animals do not have emotions and do not have feelings. That is a huge mistake, and you never have any hope of understanding any live animal without realizing it does have thoughts and feelings, and that it knows stuff. Yeah, I, I think there is um, 
I'm thinking this story. It made me think of, um, of when, like, the, the the debate on how did wolves, like, how did dogs become domesticated? And there was uh-huh. there's this guy talking about. I think of weird things. I don't know how connected this will be to what you said without me like explaining my thought process. But uh, it made me think of this uh, the story. Like this guy in modern time was up where like the wolves hang out, and uh-huh. like the wolves don't eat people. They just you know they like rabbits and stuff. So they they kept being like, hey, who's this guy? And like hung around him enough, and so eventually they would just like walk around with them. And it's like, oh, they just kind of like. Uh, you know, like the 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 dogs at the very least, like they kind of like self domesticated themselves because they were so curious. Like, oh, hey, this guy's nice, and mm-hmm. he leaves the scraps. You know, that's right. It's probably how that worked. But yeah, you know, if you always see it as like the the fearful or like like oh, they're gonna try and eat me because they have giant teeth. I mean, they could do it mm-hmm. if you're mean to them, or if they're really right. hungry. Yeah. Right. But yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I don't know what point I was gonna try and make there. I just reminded me of it, and 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 it's uh, it's a really weird story. Because I mean, growing up on a farm, I've, I've noticed like if you feed something and you're like really nice to it, they'll like follow you around. You know, they, they're like, oh, okay, you're you're good to me. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll keep an eye out for you. Like, make sure no one uh, like sneaks up on you. So, right. Yeah. I don't know what it means about society. I wish more people would do that. Like sometimes people, I feel like sometimes people are like little like introverted. Like they're very like self-centered. It's like, oh, how am I gonna succeed with life? And it's like, why don't you try to make a team of people and you all work together to make the, you know, like work on conservation or I'd actually, this week I came out with a, there's a, an episode on conservation where the the guy has basically made a, a platform where you can go on there and you can basically say, Hey, I have these skills. Um, does anyone need that any help? Like in, in doing some conservation stuff and you can actually like just all online, like work with people to like develop things that makes the world a better place. It's really neat. Mm, but cool. yeah, cause like, I think everyone wants to do, I think I would say most people like, I think one in twenty are psychopaths, and even psychopaths aren't bad people. Some of them are, though. But the, the uh, like everyone wants to do something good, but they don't know how to do it. So like the like websites like that, it's like, oh, okay, I want to help with conservation. I can go on here, help my skill, like give out my skills, you know, ten percent or whatever a week, and it can help make the place a little better. It's not in your backyard. There's so many conservation opportunities in your own own backyard. But um, is there anything like that in the sense that like missed opportunities that you notice like young people not seeing because like, like they haven't like sussed out all the paths that you found it's like i guess i'm like trying to wind that to a question on um mm. how can how can people because i think like having your perspective on things is, is a positive one and i imagine people listening in are like oh that's really interesting i would want to do similar things and they can read about you of course but like is there anything that you've learned when it comes to animals other than what we've talked about where it'd be helpful like maybe just like getting a pet because i know a lot of people don't have pets or an animal I like chickens. I'd love to have a pet chicken. Chickens are great. Yeah. Chickens are great. Um, yeah, I would I would say that that being around and watching with an open mind any animal is is hugely helpful. It could be the spider who lives in your basement. It could be the the chipmunk who lives in your yard. It could be a koi that lives in your pond. It, it could be your dog. Um but just watch with an open mind and not try to bend it to your will. I mean, a lot of us, for example, have dogs, and we want very much for the dog to live in our human world. And there's certain things you do have to ask of your dog. Like, please don't crap all over the house, for example. <laughs> um, don't jump up on the old lady and break her hip when she falls down. Things like that. But I see loads of people who love their dogs, who won't let their dog 
spend time smelling the stuff that he needs and wants to smell outside. Let your dog smell what he wants to smell and watch and and see what he enjoys. So, you know, obviously there's certain things that your dog's going to enjoy that you need to curtail. You can't let him walk, just run across the street after the squirrel when the garbage truck is coming on. And as much as he might enjoy rolling in that deer carcass, you probably really want to curtail that behavior. But there's lots of things that animals can teach us if we just let them do it um, and watch it. And and I would say it's also a good way to practice compassion mm-hmm. is putting yourself in the mind of another person or creature, one who's different from us. And this is a great way to see things new. And no matter whether you want to be a scientist or a writer or just a better citizen or a clergy person or or just become more kind, it's a terrific thing to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I agree. I wish I I had more things I disagreed with you on so that we could debate them. But uh, (laughs) I'm I'm not much of a fan of being devil's advocate. But I like to... Other than, you know, letting people know about, like, SyMontgomery.com and, like, where to, to find you, I'm always uh, – recently I've been having a lot of fun having guests basically tell people about a question that they have about the world that they don't have the answer to but that they wish they had the answer to, if that makes sense. So, like, mm, like someone yeah. out there yeah, someone out there could be like, oh, wow, she doesn't, she doesn't know that. I could, you know, like, maybe they try and answer and they could send an email or something about it. I don't know. But it's, like, a fun thing because, like, after listening to a person – talk about what they know it's kind of fun to know what they don't know what so, they like, don't know yeah so like is there is there something that like almost like burns a hole in your head like man i really wish i knew this answer that exists in the world either the natural you know anywhere it could be anything maybe like the weirdest thing well i would love i would love to know what's going on in the minds of the animals around me much more so than what i can read right now I would really, I would really love to know. I, I, you know, I'd love to know that more about, I, w- I would love to know what it feels like to be them. That's what I want to know the most. I want to know that even more than I want to know what happens to the soul after death. But I would love to know what happens to the soul after death. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I really want to know what does it feel like to be an octopus or a dog or a rhino or a squirrel or a worm or a fish. I want to know that. Hmm. And all of my work brings me a little bit closer. But unless I get reincarnated, I won't know. Hmm. (laughs) If you you had, I think that there's like a TV show in the 90s where like a woman could speak to animals. It's, uh, I don't know, there's a caviabara, there's a guy that looked, had a giant mustache. Anyone who's listening, remind me of what it is. But um, if you could pick one animal who you could, like, have a human conversation with, like, you'd ask them questions, they could understand you and, like, respond back, maybe in, like, Squidanese or whatever. But, uh, like, what, do you have an animal that's, like, that That would be the one? You could, like, talk with that one? Well, if it was an individual animal, I would love to speak with Thurber, just because I love him. He's my border collie. And I think we have a very good understanding of each other. But because I love him so much, um, I would love it if we could speak. Um, I 
I would love to be able to ask him when we're on in the woods, like, who are you smelling? And how do you feel about that? Because he's, you know, experiencing the real world through senses that I don't possess or that, you know, I, I possess just such a, a lame version of it. But I'd love to know what he, how he experiences the, the woods. I mean, I get down on my knees and try to smell what he smells, and I don't know what the hell he's, I don't know what he's smelling. I'd love to know about that. But if it was a species, I think I would love to know what life feels like to be an octopus. Because here's an animal whose last common ancestor that shared with humans, it was half a billion years ago. And, who tastes with their skin and changes color and shape and only lives for three to five years and has three hearts and whose severed arms can go off and do stuff. And I mean, geez, I would love to know. What does that feel like? Hmm. That's a good one. That's, that'd be what I'd pick. Like, yeah. I'm being honest. Because, like, yeah. they're awesome. The only thing yeah, is, like, so a, awesome. a, apparently if they eat, like, a big meal, they'll have brain damage because their brains are around their mouths. Like some Yeah, of them. I had heard that if they swallow something too big, they can hurt their their brain. Yeah. But, you know, they can regrow their arms and stuff. They can regrow almost everything except their heads. So possibly their neurons can regenerate. And mm-hmm. so maybe they recover the same way that a person with a head injury can sometimes recover. I, I hope so, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Because I would have damaged my brain many, many times when I <laughs> see delicious dessert. <laughs> so, so I was like, uh, another, like, hopefully quick question, because I know we're coming up on the hour, but the, um, wow, I think someone just fired a firework. I don't know why would someone that would do that during the day. But, um, mm. so, the, what are, not, not your books, but like, what are some, like, great books that you love reading? I think there's, like, a great book that's, like, a, like, it's like a tome on cephalopods. I read that in, high, in college. I, I'm not really good with names. I don't know if you can tell. I just know what's Well, in them. there is an excellent book on cephalopods that um, was written by Jennifer Mather, and it's called Octopus. And there's um, another one uh, written by um, Peter Godfrey Smith called Other Minds, which I have read, which is excellent. Um but are you asking about books about octopus or books um, in general? In general. Anything that like... In general. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. There's so many good ones. Um, and there's good ones that aren't about animals that are are just incredibly wonderful. Um, and I've got to say, my husband isn't a writer, too, as I told you. And I I feel he is the best writer that I have ever known, and this is why I married him. I don't think he's a good writer because I married him. I married him because he's a good writer. And um, he has written some incredible stuff. And one book that I really, really love of his is about New England. And it is called um, In the Memory House. And it's about why we preserve the, the places and the monuments that we do and how we essentially choose the history that we want to tell ourselves. And it's a terrific book. And that was Cy Montgomery. Remember to check out her newest book, How to Be a Good Creature, 
or any of her other 20 different books that she's written about different science creatures out there. She goes out there and actually meets the animals versus just you know maybe sitting in a lab or something like that. So if you like them, check it out. Look at the show notes. You'll see some links. Other than that, I want to inform people before we go that there is a new way to show support for the podcast and to keep it advertisement free from now until forever, which is called Patreon. If you go to Patreon and look for Learning with Lowell, you'll see this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell Was Here, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.